Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. It's great to be talking again and doing another Come Follow Me lesson. Indeed. We, uh, we are still very much on break, but we just had to come back for this lesson because it is such an important one. It is such a rich text, and uh, we would have quite a lot to talk about with regard to what the Book of Esther has to contribute to conversations on all kinds of justice and all kinds of, uh, you know, just all kinds of things. And we were excited to come back and uh, talk about it. But uh, before we uh, get into that, we wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So, Derek, being that it has been a bit of a week in Mormonism and also just generally speaking a while since we got to uh, talk to folks, is there anything we want to go over before we jump into the content of this lesson? Right. I want to cover three things. Uh, the first is this new Black Pioneers monument outside the This is the Place Heritage Park in uh, Utah. And then the there's this All Are Like Unto God 12th International Art Competition sponsored by the church. And then this new uh, daguerreotype that has been found that is allegedly our only authentic photograph of Joseph Smith Jr. Um, what Did you tune into any of the uh, proceedings for the, for the... So what happened yesterday being Friday the 22nd of July... There was this big thing to dedicate the new monument, and this monument covers some black pioneers in Utah, Green Flake, Hark Wales, Oscar Smith, and Jane Manning James. So mm. what, uh, did you hear about this? Oh yeah, I heard about it. Like, I mean, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I think I can say this now, but this had been a goal for the proceeds with the movie for like a while. They wanted to un they wanted to do a monument and mm -hmm. they wanted, you know, to do it like somewhere, either like the Heritage Park or Temple Square or somewhere. They they just wanted to put these monuments where people could see them. Mm -hmm. So, like, I knew about the event, but uh, I was not able to tune in live to it, unfortunately. Um, I did find out that a lot of people that I knew ended up being there. People that don't even live in Utah were there. Pretty much my whole family that was in town was there. Mm -hmm. um, my bishop was there. Uh, just like every, it seemed like everybody and their mama was there. Well, that's great. I think this goes a lot towards telling the stories, and these stories stories need to be told. Um, yeah, most the, definitely. And this and connects to Mally Bonner for telling those stories. Yes, yes, and the the Bonner family choir or whatever they're called. Just the Bonner family, I think. Okay, and then uh, oh, it's like the the family von Trapp. Yeah, kind of like that. Yes, a singing family. Anyway, <laughs> that ties into this 12th International Art Competition. And I don't know if I knew about this or what happened, but this is a judged competition where they had a round of, of judging and those that were uh, approved for the next round all are now at this exhibit at the Church History Museum. And the theme this year is All Are Like Unto God. 
and they have a different theme every year. And then this is the round of judging where I don't even know how uh, how many winners there will be. But I was looking online at the exhibits uh, and like a lot of these are really good. They're from styles around the world. Uh, they capture the diversity of human creation. And I'm like, yeah, people should check this out. Maybe we get a, a little bit of different kind of art than we normally see in the church. And I think that was mm. that's important to name. Uh, I didn't see any explicit LGBT stuff, like un, unavoidably LGBT. There were things that kind of had rainbowy things in them, right? But it could be just like, oh, people wanted a variety of colors. And I'm not sure uh -huh. exactly if any uh, of the artists are LGBTQ identified. Right. And then there's this new daguerreotype. Did you see this new Joseph Smith? Bro, it was everywhere. I, I saw it everywhere. So the funny thing is, and this is going to reveal, like I saw it, I saw this image of this dude like scrolling through Facebook and I didn't see any caption or any label of what it was. I'm like, oh, there's some hot, some super hot dude from the, from the 19th uh, century. And turns out it, might be Joseph Smith now. So, mm -hmm. and I looked at him and he looks so familiar. I can't place like where I've seen him before, but he just looks familiar. Mm -hmm. I I just can't place it. Um, but to me as an amateur, he, he looks a little bit different from the paintings I've seen of him and the death mask, which I've seen the death mask in person. And to right. me, it looks like a different person, but I'm not an expert yeah. on this. I think once experts have looked at the provenance and done detailed comparisons and, and figured that out and done more, maybe maybe a consensus will emerge that this is, uh, this is our only image of Joseph. Anyway, I just wanted to name that and let's move on into Esther. All right. Sounds good. So we are going to be in Esther. Um, short book. Um, we don't know who the author of the book is. Um, the book itself doesn't name a writer, and there's no reliable tradition that exists identifying one. But uh, just by way of background, what we got in uh, Esther, this is about, what was it, 5th century BCE, somewhere like that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So that's about the time period that we're in. We're in the Persian capital during 5th century BCE, like King Ahasuerus, the ruler of uh, the Persian Empire at this time, and it's massive. It, it spans like uh, some like 130 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And uh, what the, the time period that we're covering, this is going to be his third year as, uh, as king. And uh, during this time, he invited armies of Persia to spend about six months in the capital. At least that's what it says in the text. And uh, it was an opportunity to like flex his, flex his uh, military and political muscles a bit and scare some folks who might dare oppose him and give people an opportunity to throw in with him if he wanted. And after six months of all that flexing, he had a, you know, a week-long party uh, with leaders from his empire and some from beyond in case they wanted to like get, get in on what... Uh, you know, what King Ahasuerus was doing, the king of the Persian Empire. And uh, also, mind you, this is like during the uh, the period of the period of exile and stuff. 
Uh, the Jews were conquered. They were exiled. Some got to uh, go back to uh, got to go back to their homelands, including the Jews. Um, and though many Jews returned, some just continued to live throughout, you know, the Persian Empire. And uh, the events of the Book of Esther took place during uh, the reign of King uh, Ahasuerus, who, like we also call King Xerxes. So if I like switch back and forth between Xerxes and Ahasuerus, uh, that's why. But Ahasuerus is what's in the text. I'm going to try to say that as much. It's also really hard for me to say, though. So if I go back to Xerxes, like don't blame me or nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just doing the best I can. But anyway, going back to uh, the setting of this story. Um, after the six months of uh, military muscle flexing, um, we, we get to a, a real part. Okay. And also something to note about King Ahasuerus. He's got, he, he's got like a reputation as, a, as an irresponsible and impetuous leader in addition to being like a drunkard and having a whole harem. And before the story really yeah. starts... Basically, we're already introduced to a king who clearly violates so much of what a king ought to be according to God. And Yo, to make matters, he, he reminds me so much of Trump. I just now thought of this. I mean, I wasn't going to say nothing, but like, like because you, know, you read about this guy and you read about all the luxurious stuff he had going on in the beginning of this text, you're just like, oh, snap. Right. He's, oh, snap. Um, Akash Farosh is like really in tuned into his ego. He does not like being offended. He always wants his way. Um, he's mm. into women. Uh, he's yep. into beauty pageants. Uh, yep. He's into. Oh my gosh! I didn't even. Forget, <laughs> I didn't even consider that. But yeah, uh, you're totally right. And the other thing is, he's he's probably the most complex character we have in in the narrative of Esther. But even then, a lot of the complexity is that the king is just reacting to the latest tweet he he heard from mm-hmm. someone, right? Mm-hmm. Just like Trump. Mm-hmm. He would go off on the latest thing he heard. The same thing with uh, with with Ahasuerosh is he's very much influenced by the by the most recent thing that someone told him, and you can see this throughout the text. And I don't want to take too much time on that, but back to what you were saying about. Oh yeah, my bad. Yeah. Um. So yeah, to make matters worse, and you know. <laughs> This might be, I didn't even consider this, but like the analogy goes uh, well with this. Even though advisors up the chain could see his shortcomings, the king had surrounded himself with like a bunch of yes men, a bunch of people like him. And by the time we begin the story of Esther, this uh, kind of week-long party that came after the six months of military flexing, that party is in full swing, complete with like overindulgences of all kinds. Uh, food, drinking, dancing, probably sex too, and like a lot of other things. And this is where we, it's at this point that we meet uh, Queen Vashti in the text. And uh, the first major event of Esther's story that propels this narrative also begins to happen around this time. So we're told that Queen Vashti is is hosting a banquet for the women in the palace. So the men and women's areas were separated, even though I, I don't think at this time, um, you know, mixing men and women was really prohibited at this particular point. But anyway, this just meant that the men were partying by themselves as they engaged in these excesses. And uh, then in a drunken state, the king asked his servants to go get Queen Vashti to show her off to the dudes at the party, which again, includes some important and powerful people, military and political leaders and such. And we don't know what Vashti was thinking when she got word 
that the king wanted her to show up to a room full of drunken, powerful men. Uh, she likely knew she'd be diminished or disrespected in some way. I don't know. But, like, we can only assume. Anything could happen in that room. That much we do know. Viewed as a uh, possession of the king and interpreted by many Jewish sources as a command to show up naked, sexual assault was definitely a, uh, a possibility. It would make total sense for a woman, but especially the queen, to not want to enter a room unclothed, full of powerful drunk men who had been partying for literal days. Whatever she was thinking, Vashti, who took what Harriet Beecher Stowe called the first stand for women's rights, she refused to go. And in uh, doing so, she set in motion the events of, uh, of Esther. And predictably, the king was mad. Uh, what Vashti did wasn't just a marital issue, but a legal one as well. She refused a direct order from her king. In addition to the legal ramifications, there were heavy social ones too. Uh, Queen Vashti just made the king of the massive Persian Empire look dumb in front of his subordinates and people he was trying to subordinate. With, with a single act, she undermined the dude's power that he'd been flexing for half a year. Vashti disrupted the political hierarchy and the gender hierarchy, and in so doing, she caused these uh, fears listed in verses uh, 16 through 18. I'm going to just read those real quick. Mm -hmm. So 16 and 18 in chapter 16 through 18 in chapter one. Not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded king Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's behavior, will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. Exclamation mark, close quote. Bro, <laughs> Queen Vashti done put the fear of God in all these men. They're afraid that if word gets out that Vashti can say no to her husband, then all the other women can say no to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And we just can't have mm -hmm. that, can we? Mm. So... <laughs> They made a public example of Queen Vashti in response to this whole incident. She's banished, and, uh, and you know, we don't hear her name again in the text. We don't hear her name ever again. Uh, but there's a few things I want to say about this. First off is just the simple fact that Vashti needs to be talked about more. Like, mm -hmm. several influential women... Influential woman figures throughout history, she's largely forgotten and forced to take a back seat uh, to others. Uh, a theologian, Brenda Salter McNeil, she makes an analogy that I really like that Vashti is to Esther what Ida B. Wells is to uh, Rosa Parks. We know far mm -hmm. more about the latter mm -hmm. than we do the former. But the, uh, but the former deserved to be talked about and to go down in the annals of history, to be acknowledged, because we don't have the latter without them. We literally do not have uh, the Great Migration, the NAACP, and therefore probably not Rosa Parks without Ida B. Wells. Neither do we have Esther without Vashti's act of rebellion. Uh, the second thing I wanted to bring up is how much power women can wield. Uh, women can mm -hmm. really disrupt things. Look at how much trouble... Vashti raised simply by saying no to a man. All official resources and protocol of state are needed to deal with the trouble that she caused just by saying no, specifically the threat she posed to men. Granted, she was the queen, but still, we're, we're, we're going to see some more of this from Esther, but a woman using the power they do have to influence those with more power than they do can be somewhat of a theme in this book, and we've seen it elsewhere in the text too. We saw this 
early on with Zipporah and several other women in the first few chapters of mm-hmm. Exodus. We saw this with Joel. We saw this with uh, with Deborah. We saw this with Abigail, Tamar, Rahab, and and you know a lot more. Most of these women were not in the most advantageous positions, but their actions significantly changed the fate of entire families and or nations. Um, and, you know, definitely a bigger conversation that can be had there. One that I think we've started a few times on this show, but, you know, never really explored at length. Uh, but there are other sources, uh, other people who are having this conversation that I'm happy to uh, refer people to. Uh, But thirdly, and this is an important but not as encouraging truth in Vashti's story, and uh, if you've taken my anti-racism course, you already know it, but I'm going to say it here now too. Making a courageous choice or uh, the right choice won't necessarily make you a hero or protect you. you. You stand to lose a lot, and you could face the consequences of your bravery alone, as happened to Vashti. Some of us have lost jobs, callings, Mm -hmm. or friendships. And uh, I know that's not fair, but it is reality that proper proper allyship or, or standing up for yourself may have a cost. And as we'll see with Esther, that shouldn't stop us from doing the right things. If we read Vashti in this way, as someone who knew her worth and courageously stood up for herself, we, we learn a couple things. You know, sometimes people, even even those who enter relationships with us or tell us that they love us, they, they don't know how to respect or value us. And and because of that, we, we can't compromise our dignity to, to please other people uh, or hold on to a relationship or, or not make waves. Uh, Queen Vashti shows us there are far worse things than losing a relationship or a job or a calling or followers on social media mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With, with Vashti's banishment. The stage is now set in chapter two for an empire-wide uh, beauty pageant, as you so called it, for uh, to, to find a new queen for Ahasuerus. And it is during that search that we uh, that we meet Esther and her cousin slash adoptive father uh, Mordecai. But before we get to chapter two, do you have anything else you want to say about Vashti or chapter one? Yeah, I I wanted to say like, two things. One is just following up on what the point of activism is like i think one big goal is change we want to we want to change but there is also a point to activism even when change might not be that likely or that easy or guaranteed and i think part of the point is i can't remember who said this but someone has taught uh, someone said, "Well, why are you why are you speaking up? It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to change the the whole power structure stacked against you. It's it's not going to it's not going to it's not going to work." And then this person said, "Well, I'm not speaking up to change the system exactly, but I'm speaking up because if I don't speak up, then the system will have changed me, and I do not want to be changed by the system. I do not want to be complicit in the system. So even if." What I say doesn't make a change. It uh, it allows me to name that I'm not complicit in this, and I think the record will show that that person was was right. And so sometimes I don't know, and we don't know in advance what what's going to work exactly and what won't. And I think about my position uh, in terms of change in the church for LGBTs. 
I don't know if what I do will have a direct effect on creating change or how soon that will happen. It seems like we are several decades away from substantive change on LGBT issues. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And it could be that what I do might not directly change the church, but it might help raise up a generation of queer people who are willing to stay in the church and willing to work. And then those people will be the Esters of their generation for such a time as this. So we will see what happens. For such a time as this. You did that on purpose, didn't you? I did. Of course I did. <laughs> and I, Brilliant. I I had some like intro-y, I had a lot of, I had a significant, some intro-y stuff that I wanted to cover. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not really going to go through line by line the whole book of Esther. I presuppose that people are going to go and actually read the whole book of Esther on their own. Um, uh-huh. But I wanted to name some things. And some of the most important characters in the text are Vashti and Esther. We don't focus enough on women in the text uh, in church and especially as women in the text as examples for men. A lot of the times, like, women in the text are seen as a women's issue, which is weird because all of the men in the text, like Nephi, all of the male heroes in the text, allegedly women are supposed to see themselves there, right? That women are supposed to look to Nephi as an example of faith or, or uh-huh. Moroni or whatever. And like, if if women are expected to look at all the men in the text for lessons, men in the church should be looking to the women in the text, not just as a women's topic, but as something for everyone. And the same thing is true of Heavenly Mother. Men need to be talking about Heavenly Mother. Heavenly mm-hmm. Mother isn't just for women. Um, but let's talk about uh, I mean, can we talk about that irony real quick? I just want to highlight this because this seems to be like one of the at least big ironies of the book of Esther is just how Esther is a role model for the di- for the diaspora Jew mm-hmm. as, you know, the central mm-hmm. figure of this book. Like it's it's one of the most curious elements of this book to me, uh, considering that, you know, within post-exile Jewish communities, women's roles were quite circumscribed in, right. you know, just... I mean, is there more to be discussed there with regard to just the fact that the central character of this story for a post-exilic Jew being a woman and Esther being held up as a role model, not just for women, but as the diaspora Jew? I think so. And I think it's in part because Esther's identity as a woman is what gave her access to the Mm. king, right? Mm. If she had been a man she never would have been married to the king, right? So, but still, they could have just as easily made this story about Mordecai. Right, that's true. That is true. But they made it about Esther. Yes. Um, that is true. I think that Esther does serve as a good, good role model for... And I think the whole point of the Esther story, especially when you look at chapter 9, is to sort of retroactively explain to people the origin of the Purim holiday. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the details on that, but it seems okay. that Esther was written at a time where the, the holiday is already celebrating and then being celebrated. And this ex- explains why. Right. So and they read the story every holiday, right? Right. Yes. Um, okay. Just making sure. And so the other thing is Vashti and Esther both come out. This is a coming out story. 
uh, and both tap into their eternal and internal dignity and say, no, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to speak up, even though it might be costly. That's a coming out, right? Vashti Mm. comes out as a woman with dignity, a woman who... Um, is not going to obey something that is degrading or or inappropriate. And the biblical text right. doesn't uh, explicitly say that she was asked to come out naked. Uh, like you said, later Jewish commentators have have uh, suspected that. But mm-hmm. something about that was inappropriate. And she, despite all of her socialization, right? I can't think of many women in the ancient world who did what she did. Right. Right. Um, right. She went ag- against apparently what her own socialization would have been and what the power of the king would have been. Remember, this is the same king that kills everyone that that gets gets him mad. Right. So mm. uh, and then, of course, Esther comes out as Jewish and she leverages her privilege and her access to the king for the good of the Jewish people. She ends up saying, hey, look. I am Jewish, and and what's happened, what you have decreed, is going to hurt me, and it's going to hurt my people. And she uh, appears twice unsummoned before the king. This is in five, chapter five, verse two, and chapter eight, verse three. And that was incredible risk because the king could have had her killed either time for appearing unsummoned. And that gets into another thing about the the sort of the glue and the lubrication all throughout the text. And it's the gender non-binary minorities that we have in the text, the eunuchs. Ah, yeah, the eunuchs. And I really think that the eunuchs are so uh, left out. Right. I went I looked at a couple of come follow me resources, some that were, were substantial and hours long, and they didn't mention the eunuchs. The eunuchs appear in almost every chapter of Esther, and they are the only characters in the story who move freely on the chessboard. They are like the, like imagine a a chess piece that can just move anywhere uh, and not not follow the rules. That is what the eunuchs can do in this story. They are behind the scenes. They are alongside the scenes. They're um they're they're uh, the ones that are arranging all these other major characters and putting them in these different uh, places. And I think the eunuchs have access to people and access to information, and that's not an accident. It is their marginal status as eunuchs that allows them this access. For example, uh, men who are castrated are apparently safe to be in the women's quarters, right? So these eunuchs can flow into and out of the women's quarters. They can flow into and out of the the men's quarters. They can flow into and out of um, the king's most personal areas right they have access to the king they have access to um all of the royal power uh because they cannot have children they cannot uh, create a dynasty it is unlikely that they're going to take the throne for themselves right so they can be trusted with the women they can be trusted with access to the king because of their their uh their status I'm like that is so interesting, um, right. and this kind of says, well, we, we, well, um, and I don't want to make a direct analogy between LGBTQ people because there's a whole bunch of differences, a whole bunch of differences. I'm not saying it's the same thing. I am not saying that it is a direct analogy, but I think it's an indirect analogy because it talks about what 
marginalized people in any uh, in any um, context what options are available and how how they flow through their world can inspire us who are differently marginalized how to flow through our world and i just think it's very powerful and especially i'll i'll, I'll get i'll talk more about unix in a moment um but with with god right uh when we talk about the unix um in isaiah 56 it's it's a little bit about the relationship with God, because that doesn't tell us exactly uh, Unix aren't the same as LGBTQ people today, but the God yeah. is the same, right? And so the way that God yeah. treated Unix in Isaiah 56 can help us figure out how God will treat LGBT folks today. And I'll, I'll come back to that. But I wanted to talk about another thing, and this is a very important detail in the book of Esther, and it's that we do not hear or see God on stage in the plot, there is no mention of God, at least Hold in on, the what? Hebrew. What? There's no mention of God at all in this text. Oh yeah, of course. You, I, I thought Snap. you knew that. But yeah. I mean, I suspect. Like, I thought. I didn't. I just realized I wasn't thinking about it. Like, now that you say it, I don't recall God ever being mentioned. But I'm just like, oh shoot. Yeah, there's God no mention of text. of prayer, of covenant, of the of the Torah, of um, God's you know promises to people. At least in the Hebrew text, there is mention of fasting, um, but right. there is no mention of of prayer or of God or of or any of that stuff. And so, what do we make of that? We do not see or hear God on stage. And I want to say a couple of things about that. One is, it's so interesting that we have the eunuchs all over the place in almost every chapter, but there's God in none of the chapters. And I think, oh, that is that is a very interesting uh, point. Uh, but I think part of it has to do with God's timing. People... And this is abusive and manipulative to say, oh, you just need to wait on God's timing and don't demand revelation. Like, <laughs> people who say that have zero direct familiarity with the Bible. I'm just going to say that. If you say, Dang. oh, just wait on God and and God will get to it and, and you have no business talking to God. You have no business asking or seeking or knocking or you have no business, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, right? Anyone who says, oh, just wait on God's timing is being manipulative and abusive uh, or they're completely unfamiliar with the Bible. So what we see here is that God's people took initiative and responsibility. They didn't just wait on God. They said, we're going to arrange stuff. Esther and Mordecai arranged things. They worked. They did stuff to make their uh, they engaged in activism. They took the initiative and responsibility on themselves to get the plot going in a favorable direction. So for the people that don't know, um, an enemy of the Jews, Haman persuaded king uh, the king to, to genocide all of the Jews. And then Esther and Mordecai strategized a way of, of resisting that. And so, and they succeeded in the end. Um, but I do want to say that there are some additions to Esther in the Greek text. This is the Septuagint. And this, uh, the Septuagint text is canonical in Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy. And so they actually have God in their text of Esther. So the Septuagint, the, the Septuagint actually adds in God and explains it in terms of God. But we can make sense mm. of the text the way it is here in terms of, well, God is working behind the scenes. And sometimes we need to take initiative and then later generations will say, whoops, look at how God was doing it. 
And I think that's what we as queer people have to do in the church today. We need to take the initiative and then later generations will look at it and say, look how God was moving behind the scenes. Right. Uh, Right. And this gets a very interesting point about Heavenly Mother, because I think for the text of Esther, for men to read the text of Esther, and there's no mention of a male God, there's no mention of a female God, there's no mention of Heavenly Father or Heavenly Mother, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is an imaginative way of saying, like, we who are men look at the book of Esther and see no God in the text, Imagine if all of the scriptures were like Esther and we didn't see God the Father anywhere. That is what many of our our sisters in the church are feeling when they look at our scriptures, when they look at our conference talks and see little to no mention of Heavenly Mother. It would be like all we had is the book of Esther, right? Where both God, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are completely behind the scenes. So in a way... Esther has equality for Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother because neither one is mentioned. Uh, mm. But this is kind of a kind of a really roundabout way of saying Esther gives us an imagination and some empathy for what many sisters in the church feel like. I mean, I would feel deprived if all we had was Esther, if all we had was stuff that didn't mention God at all, if we had no mention of Heavenly Father it would be like everything's like Esther. I'm like, that would not be okay. And I think a similar thing is true when we have little to no explicit mention of Heavenly Mother anywhere. Uh, It would be like, everything would be like Esther, and that's not not good. I also want to name that according to the Talmud, Esther was a woman prophet, uh, one of the uh, seven women prophets who were named explicitly, and those are Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. Um, and we'll get to see this uh, later. There's a, a large space to talk about racism and genocide in the text because Haman Ooh. is racist. And Achashverosh <laughs> is complicit in following Haman's racism, right? It's mm-hmm. pure it's pure spite, right? Like Haman is right. is jealous, is protective, is like scared of the Jews. Um, is insulted by the Jews and wants to kill all the Jews. I'm like, that that needs to be named. And then I want to just yeah. briefly name that there are some parallels with the Exodus narrative. So what we have here is a foreign court, right? Um, Egypt or, or Persia. We have someone who is introduced to the royal household. In the case of Moses, it's uh, he's adopted in uh, as a non non-Egyptian. He has access. Um, he has to later come out as as uh, a Hebrew, and, and so does Esther. Um, and then there is uh, uh, an attempt at extermination. There are conversations between the, the Moses or Esther character and the king who has the authority. Um, there's divine intervention explicitly in Exodus, and it's behind the scenes apparently in Esther. Um, there are no miracles or supernatural things in Esther at all, by the way, just so people know. Uh, then then the, the Jews are victorious in the end in both narratives. And I think, I don't know if Esther is dependent on the Exodus narrative, but I think that there's some some very curious, and I'm, I haven't even gotten all the parallels, but, but I'm sure there's more you could think of. Probably. 
I wanted to spend some time talking about these eunuchs because, oh boy, I'm just I'm just obsessed with these eunuchs the more and more I think <laughs> about them. So the Torah right. itself, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, says that eunuchs are prohibited from, uh, from serving in the assembly, from being part of the Lord's people. And that seems to be the Lord's will. It seems to be a proclamation. It seems to be whatever. But Isaiah, oh boy, Isaiah comes in with this brilliant point about social justice, um, about foreigners, and about eunuchs. And I'm just going to read this text because it's so important. This is Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 7. Isaiah says, No foreigner who becomes a follower of the Lord should say, The Lord will certainly exclude me from his people. The eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. Uh, and by the way, the, the dried up tree has to do with uh, offspring, right? Not bearing fruit. Uh, for this is what the Lord says, Isaiah says. For the eunuchs who observe my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and are faithful to my covenant, I will set up within my temple and my walls a monument that will be better than sons and daughters. I will set up a permanent monument for them that will remain. As for foreigners who have become followers of the Lord and serve him, who love the name of the Lord and want to be his servants, all who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it and who are faithful to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. Close quote. Notice this inclusivity, because people that you would think are outside of the covenant reach, the foreigners, the, the non-Jews, and the eunuchs, are explicitly included um, in the plan of salvation, uh, with Isaiah 56. And what's interesting about that is it's not like, oh, I'm going to fix you to the eunuchs or like I'm going to fix you so you can have kids and then you can like have kids and that will be uh, how you get included. No, he's saying I'm going to include you on, the, on terms that are authentic to you. I will give you something that's better than having sons and daughters. Um. So this has impacts on our disability theology. It has impacts on LGBT theology. I think most people want to say, well, everyone's going to end up with a spouse and kids in the next life if they, you know, God's going to make it all work out somehow. And the way they imagine that is everyone's going to be fixed to be straight and married fixed. and and having kids. Like maybe that's not yeah. going to happen. Right? right. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's room for one body with many members and we're not all going to be the foot. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that there is a permanent monument for them to do the best they can with the covenant, which does not include reproduction. Right. They can't. They're not going to be able to be, be fruitful, multiply. But God has a place for them and it's an honored place and it's not a place that gets uh where they get fixed to be like everyone else. So that that needs to be named. And I also want to talk about Matthew 19 because this really impacts our understanding of family. So I'm not saying that eunuchs are a direct analogy to LGBTs, but both of these texts speak to what does family look like and what is family what what is possible and what is required. Here's what Jesus says. 
Um, now I just got a name that we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No other middle name should be put in that place. We are not the Church of the president of the church. We're not the church of Derek Knox. Oh boy, that would be bad. We would all be doing family homo evening if I were the president. <laughs> but thankfully, we've got the Lord as as the leader of the church, right? And this is what the Lord has said in Matthew 19. Now I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immor- immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the case of a husband with a wife, It is better not to marry. He said to them, Not everyone can accept this statement, except those to whom it has been given. For there are some eunuchs who were that way from birth, and some who were made eunuchs by others, and some who became eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this should accept it. He doesn't say, Oh, well, you know, you need to get married. Anyway, you need to get married and have kids. He says there's an honorable place for people who do not marry and have kids. Isn't that amazing? Like all this talk about family and these Instagram families that have a mommy and a daddy and 3.5 kids. Like that's not even the beginning of what the kingdom of, of heaven looks like for people. There's way more room in the kingdom for alternative families, for people who choose not to have kids, for people who um, are not able to have kids, for people who do not marry or choose not to marry. There's just a whole bunch more room, and they are throwing Jesus under the the, uh, bus by making everyone into, well, it's all about you have to have a husband and a wife in order to be exalted. Um, People just need to take that in light of what Isaiah has said, in what of light, in light of what Jesus has said. They need to take that that narrow-minded thinking and shove it up their proclamation, <laughs> right? Like the gospel is way bigger than than these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I want to talk about the eunuchs in the book of Esther because, like I said, they are the glue behind the scenes of the lubrication behind the scenes. They are the ones who um, are the messengers. Like Mordecai and Esther don't even get to, to contact directly. They have to convey their messages through the eunuchs. That is how messages got passed between uh, Vashti and Ahasuerus. The, it was the eunuchs who arranged the Miss Persia contest. It is the eunuchs who helped Esther win the Miss Persia contest. And yep. back when yep. it was time to deal with Haman, um, because, uh, of course, uh, the king realizes that Haman is behind the plot to kill his his wife, Esther, he's like, oh, I'm mad. I got to figure out what to do. And it's one of the eunuchs in uh, in chapter seven who says, oh, guess what, king? Um, it was the one of the eunuchs who said, guess what? Don't you remember you built a gallows originally intended for Mordecai? Just use that, right? I think that yeah, is- Yeah, hang, hang on it. <laughs> what? Yeah, go ahead. And then- Yeah. Um, yeah, let me look at this. Verse uh, 7, verse 9. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Indeed, there's the gallows that um, Haman made for Mordecai, 
who spoke out in the king's behalf. It stands near Haman's home and is 75 feet high. The king said, hang him on it, right? So it's so interesting how none of this, almost none of these uh, plot points in Esther would happen were it not for the eunuchs. I mean, it is so mm. amazing how they how they flow through uh, through each of these each of these scenes right and i think uh we who are in the church who feel on the margins we actually should say it all depends on how you look at the story you can look at us as marginal but you can also look at us as yeah, well, maybe some people tell the story with with uh, certain characters as the center, but you can also tell the story differently. You can tell the story with us as the center, with us as the whole, um, uh, the whole everything. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why what I wanted to say um, about like introductory material in the Unix. Any questions or thoughts? I was talking a lot. <laughs> No, it's all good, man. I mean, first of all, I'm just glad you brought up how the eunuchs are moving this story along from like start to finish. Like uh, they don't really get spoken of a bunch, but like at every critical juncture of, you know, story development, they're they're the eunuchs are, you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They are playing some kind of important part here. And, you know, I'll admit it didn't even occur to me that while the eunuchs are playing such an important part here to also discuss, um, you know, just how we treat them in the text generally. And that, you know, given their role here, it would stand to reason that there is probably, you know, because because they're used in such an important and such a meaningful role in this story, even though they're not necessarily the stars of the show, though even that is a bit, you know, mm-hmm. kind of debatable. And I know that people will write whole stories about people behind the scenes, just like they did with the butler. But right. I'm just saying... Like, uh, I'm glad that you have taken a moment to talk about characters that have been so pivotal to the story and also lifted them up in ways that, uh, you know, not just highlight them, but also validate their role in this story and validate their position in society and therefore in God's eyes. Yeah, and I think this is a common theme throughout the biblical narrative. It's people's marginality that ironically gives them access. Oh, yep. Yep. Like these eunuchs would not have been placed um, where they were placed and had the the access and information and authority and uh, and freedom that they that they would have had had they not been castrated men like that Mm -hmm. needs to be named. And we see this right. with um, Esther. She would not have been placed where she was had she not been a woman. Rahab would mm-hmm. not have been placed where she was to see farther than anyone else in Jericho had she not been a sex worker and mm-hmm. had she not been in the city wall, on literally on the margins. I think it's the margins right. that hold the center and that actually end up being the center. And this is really what, what Jesus talked about. And this is why Jesus said very clearly, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven is going to look more like sex workers than it's going to look like you rule-keeping religious people, right? That is so radical. I Like, I've grown up with that text, and I forget how radical that is. Like, that is so, like, culturally offensive for Jesus to say that. Like, I'm used to it, but, like, mm-hmm. now we see why people wanted to crucify him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. 
And I want to go into Esther chapter four, because this is a part of Esther working up the courage to come out to uh, to her husband. And so this is Esther four verses 12 okay. and 14. When, is this connecting to a point that you made before, or is this a, a, chron- a chronological move? Because if it's chronological, oh. I wanted to go back to two. Oh, yeah, let's go to two. Okay. And, uh, you know, what I'm trying to address here is something brief. I'm going to move pretty quickly through two and three, but uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of things about Haman, about Mordecai, and about kind of the move of the story after Esther mm-hmm. becomes queen. But uh, we got to acknowledge that Haman... Uh, is pretty much the guy that the king elevates to the position of prime minister for reasons that aren't really clear to us at all. And mm-hmm. Haman is also an, uh, he, he's an Agagite, which makes him a descendant of Agag, the leader of the Amalekites, who are old and bitter enemies of Israel. Basically, the whole detail is included to let us know that Haman hates Jews. And this becomes a problem real quick because the king in the next verse demands that everybody bow down to him, like pay homage to him, show obeisance to him. But Mordecai, you know, being a Jew himself, uh, and, you know, we also know he works for the king in some in some capacity by this point. He just refuses to bow down. And, you know, while that makes sense for Mordecai to do, um, because, you know, Haman is part of an enemy group, but it also doesn't make sense because the Jews had been in exile for a minute. And even though they were known for not paying homage to anyone but God, the Jews have been in exile for many years and had no problem assimilating, even if it meant paying homage to someone besides God. Even Mordecai himself had told Esther not to reveal her ethnicity so she could assimilate. So like this kind of radical move for Mordecai simultaneously makes sense, doesn't make sense at all. And that's something like I'm still trying to make sense of but like i just wanted to highlight that because it makes a lot of sense of what happens to the rest of the story because predictably this angers Haman, and uh, rather than taking it up with mordecai himself Haman decides to take his frustrations out on all jews using both fear and his position as his as his weapon i, I really just want to I really want to read Haman's uh, words here because this mess made me feel a way i rarely get angry reading you know, the sacred text, but this mess sounded way too familiar. Um, This is chapter three now, by the way, chapter three, verse eight through nine. So this is Haman saying to King Ahasuerus, quote, there is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, Let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business so that they may put it into the king's treasuries, close quote. So Manz is basically saying, these people are different. Their customs are different. They're not like us. Therefore, they are less than us. And therefore, they are a threat. And we got to get rid of them. Like, how familiar does that sound? This is It's the same story. As we we always hear this. Same story, same divisive rhetoric we hear today, even in the church, to the point where people simply being different is an attack on the family. You know what I saw on Twitter the other day, my guy? Let me tell you what I saw on Twitter the other day. Uh Uh-oh. And, and you know, this dude really thought he ate when he said this, too. But this is what he said. He said, if you ask any member of the church how they feel about the family proclamation, that'll tell you 95% of what you need to know about their faithfulness. Like... 
how committed and how myopic does your view of our theology have to be to the point where you feel like your homophobia is 95% of your faithfulness and that anyone who would dare oppose it is an, apost- is an apostate? Like that is just pathetic. It is sad. It is disappointing. It's awful, man. Like people simply being different is an attack on the family. That's where we're at right now. We obviously see this racially too in the country. Like you could very well Mm -hmm. make a case that folks espousing white supremacy, they don't just want the separation of the races, but want the extermination of them. Like there are many who use stereotypes and generalizations to lump certain people from the same culture or nationality into one group. Like we saw this with internment camps. We saw this with efforts to determine who might be a terrorist. We, we see this in our treatment of Latinx immigrants, like with some fear, with some misunderstanding and a lack of compassion, one person doing something illegal or untoward can be all that's necessary to justify racial and ethnic profiling. That's what it was with Haman. That's what we see in a lot of the media. Man was ready to off an entire ethnic group just because Mordecai wasn't going to bow to him. And what's messed up is the king actually agrees to Haman's proposition on fear alone. He basically tells Haman, look, keep your money or use it however you want and do what you wish. And he agreed to the violent genocide of Jews because he's afraid of their otherness. And again, we still see that today with various groups. We are willing to treat people terribly. We're, we're willing to exclude them and even exterminate them simply because they're being different. And nowhere, I think, is that more apparent than our transgender siblings. Like, mm-hmm. we have seen a regular pattern of their death, of their murder, simply because they are different. Like, and we don't hear a lot about them because we don't, like to be frank, we don't care nearly enough about our transgender siblings. So yeah, you, right. you just see what the exactly. role of fear and power and a lack of compassion can really do and what kind of terrible instrument that can be in the hands of somebody like a Haman. Yeah, it is so, so interesting, right? And I think, um, now I've been to a number of, so on the holiday of Purim, they uh uh, they read, I mean, Jews read, even to this day, of course, uh, from the scroll of Esther in Hebrew. And it's an amazing thing to, to, to listen uh, and to participate and to watch because they um, make a big festivity out of it. Many wear costumes and they have noisemakers that they use that whenever Haman's name is uh, chanted, uh, they have the noisemakers that blot out his name. Oh, and I think that's uh, is that for legacy. Yep, and I, we should do that with uh, with well certain other people is just blot out their name uh, with noise. <laughs> but um, what's interesting is that when the text is read, or it's actually more chanted in Hebrew, you get to do different voices because if you are like voicing Haman's voice, you get to make him sound creepy and and evil. You get to make him sound bad. You get to make uh, Ahasuerosh sound stupid, right? You get to make, and there's just ways of playing with the text. I wish that we had more um, choices of uh, of, re- of reading the text in, in our church tradition, more liturgical readings of the text where we would be able to um, to do that. And, and I'm like, just, just ways of, uh, but anyway, 
I had something I was going to say about chapter four. Uh, two things to say about chapter four. I. Um, well, it has to do with uh, this is Esther and Mordecai working up the courage to come out to uh, to the king. And at first, Esther doesn't want to do it. Uh, she's like, no, I'm just going to, I'll be safe. I'm not going to, uh, and I, I think Moses had a similar thing too. Like, am I going to really risk everything to, to be, to have solidarity with my own people when I could escape? And, uh, part of Morde- Mordecai's point is, well, you might not actually escape. Um, but anyway, and like I said, they're, they're passing back, uh, notes through the, through the eunuchs. And by the way, the eunuchs are the ones, we didn't cover this, but back in chapter two, Mordecai got standing with the king and got respect and trust from the king because Mordecai exposed a plot against the king's life by two of the eunuchs, right? So two of the king's eunuchs were, were planning to kill the king and Mordecai informed the king and from then on, uh, the king trusted Mordecai. Um, so Mordecai used his knowledge to gain favor with the with the powers, and then he was able to later deploy that. Now, of course, the king had to be, like I said, this king is a Trump figure. He only remembers the thing he's read in the last 30, 30 minutes. Um, so the king had to be reminded from the royal records about this. But anyway, let's go back to um, Esther chapter 4, and here's what... What, what happens? Um, this is verses 12 through 14. When Esther's reply was conveyed to Mordecai, he said to take back this answer to Esther. Don't imagine that because you are part of the king's household, you will be the one Jew who will escape. If you keep quiet at this time, liberation and protection for the Jews will appear from another source while you and your father's household perish. It may very well be that you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. Such a time as this. For such there a time is. as this. And mm-hmm. I think about this um, sort of as a queer person and the, and the courage to come out. Like, yeah, I could. You know, and I, I think it's true. Um, eventually, we're going to have queer liberation in the church. I don't know how or when or, or under whose watch but it's got to happen it's going to happen we can see this is where where all the facts are going this is god is on the side of queer people um our society is changing at least in the um uh in north america and europe and it's actually changing worldwide too but just on a different um um, different rhythm but anyway it's going to change and so the question i have is am i going to be part of that change or not and i've got i've got to remind myself you know if equality for queer people is going to happen, it's going to happen. Right. Am I going to get credit for some of that or not is my choice. And I want to be here to work on it. And I want to say I was here for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. Um, you showed up. And I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. Like she she didn't know she risked death to do this. And I should be willing to risk all sorts of things in order to speak up for my people in the church. I'm going to get pushed back mm-hmm. from the people on that, like that Twitter person. That Twitter person's going to going to have something to say to me, right? But I need to do it anyway. Yeah. If we can just talk about this whole exchange between Mordecai and uh, Esther, because this is super illuminating to me. Because um, like, Chapter four, by the way, this is just after the decree 
like went out and stuff. Mm-hmm. And at this mm-hmm. point, Mordecai shows up outside the palace uh, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, lamenting and making a scene. And when Esther finds out about the scene, mind you, Esther has been queen for like a minute, like four or five years by this point. Mm-hmm. She's distressed. She's isolated. And she has no idea what's going on on the outside world. She doesn't know what's happening outside the yeah. palace. She didn't know that in every province there was profound grief among the Jews like Mordecai and herself. So like operating off what she can only observe, she tried to send the man some clothes to put on. So he, you know, take mm-hmm. off his sackcloth at least, but he doesn't accept them. It's a really interesting episode because I, I guess because of two things. Uh, one being that Esther clearly cares about Mordecai. This is the dude that raised her when she had nobody. She wanted to help him, you know, probably pained her to see him like that. She was like, what's going on? What's your deal? But on the other hand, she's clearly uncomfortable with Mordecai's behavior and her response to him demonstrates how little she understands about mm-hmm. what's going on and even degree, even a degree of insensitivity. Like, sending him clothes communicated how little she understood the situation. It, it seemed to communicate the sentiment, dude, pull yourself together. You're making a scene and it's weird. Like, take that noise away. It's it's such a fascinating duality. Like, she wanted to help, but her cluelessness and discomfort caused her to act entirely inappropriately. It's it's very common thing to see this day and age, uh, particularly the people who might say that people like you and I are overreacting to stuff. But this is ultimately why Mordecai sent the clothes back. He didn't want yeah. to be clothed. That wasn't the problem. More specifically, he didn't want to be silenced. He didn't want to be pacified. He didn't want to be ignored or placated or otherwise forced to compose himself because Esther was uncomfortable with his grief. Like, he wasn't going to do that nonsense. He would not be silent. And it reminds me of uh, a quote that James Baldwin said, like, if I love you, I'm going to tell you where you've fallen short. Like, that's just what I got to do. But his lament, more to the point, it was not a despairing cry into the void. It was uh, what theologian Emmanuel Katongale called a prayer of those deeply disturbed by the way things are. It, it was a, a a way to call public attention to an egregious problem. And this this is something I need people to understand about, you know, what you and I do. Uh, I'll speak for myself anyway in saying that, you know, some of my complaining can be petty, but most of it is lament. I'm I'm disturbed by the way many things are, and I continue talking about them, I continue rending my clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, because my hope is that the prayer is eventually heard and understood, that eventually people will stop sending clothes to silence me, that they stop expecting me to be content with token gestures of diversity inclusion while forgetting that justice is the ultimate end of that stuff, until they stop insisting that this is the best they can do. Until until mm-hmm. black Americans stop dying, until we find a way for queer folks to be fully included, until we find until we realize how unnecessary the dispossession of women in a church mostly participated in by them is, keep your clothes. Don't yeah, send me your clothes. Yeah, I, and I, I think, don't lament. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I I think that it's I think people on the on the right, or even just the average good white person does not understand what racism is. And that's they, what Esther did. They think, you know, there's there's good or maybe not semi-good white people who think racism equals someone yelling the N-word or it's Aunt Jemima on the bottle, right? That's what they think racism is. They don't see the disparities in policing. They don't see the disparities right. in education and in funding. Right. They don't see right. um, 
the, the substantial risk that may or mm-hmm. may not be obviously tied to race according to the definition of certain white people, right? And I think that's where mm-hmm. critical race theory comes in is a lot of this stuff isn't overt. It isn't like traceable to just this most obvious discrimination, right? But there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And so when people say, oh, there's no racism in the church, they think about, well, I don't hear anyone saying the N-word, which which apparently uh, happens <laughs> a lot more than people would want to admit um, still. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it, it, this reminds me of something that's, that's interesting. Like I used to look at um, – the Esther story and for years I, I just kind of assumed that Esther and Mordecai were the heroes and in a, in a sense they are but in another sense they don't always act completely above board or completely honorably they they've got some complexity too in some ways the only yeah. truly honorable person in the whole narrative is Vashti right she, she she's completely above board like Esther and Mordecai end up um perhaps more bloodthirsty than they need to in the end. Um, they look for vengeance and not just justice. They um, triumph and celebrate over the defeat of their enemies rather than mourning the loss of, of fellow children of God who could have been reclaimed for uh, for, for repentance, right? Um, there's, there's just some things. Even the way that Mordecai and Esther, you know, treat each other isn't, com- you know, completely... Uh, um, honorable either. They're both in a very tight spot um, trying to do what they can and so they end up uh, um, anyway, sort of I- I- exploiting the the situation. Um, well, here's what I want to say is I, I want to get to this verse from Esther 8 verse 6 and this is her appeal to the king. I'm jumping forward, I know, but, but this gets okay. to the courage that she had in coming out. She says, for how can I watch the calamity that will befall my people and how can I watch the destruction of my relatives? I feel the same thing about queer people. Like how can I watch like 90% of of people, ninety to ninety-five percent of LGBTs in the church fail, right? It, from a spiritual, inclusive standpoint, like I think so many of us leave the church, or are disgusted with the church, or are pushed out of the church, or or we uh, succumb to um, being colonized by the church's homophobia and go all the way the other way and and, and become anti-gay. Like there's, we do not have very many successes in our church, which means there's a structural problem. But I want to go back to uh, this this engagement with Esther. So the part that I quoted when she, when she said, uh, I didn't quote her message to Mordecai, but she said in verses uh, eleven, in verse eleven, basically I can't go to the king because he could put me to death. And that's when, uh, through the eunuchs, Mordecai replies to her, uh, "Why do you think that you'll escape? Right, liberation's going to come anyway. Why would you think that you're going to escape?" Uh, it might be that you're put here for such a time as this. And here's Esther's reply, uh, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, that's the capital, Shushan in Hebrew, and fast in my behalf. Don't eat and don't drink for three days, night or day. My female attendants and I will also fast in the same way. Afterward, I will go to the king even though it violates the law. If I perish, I perish. Like, wow, that's amazing. She decides, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out. 
I'm going to interrupt the king, even though if it's unwelcome, I could I'll, I'll be put to death because I've got to save my people. If I die, I die, but I got to do the right thing. Um, I've got to count the cost, and I'm going to hold the powers that be accountable. And then so uh, this is a t- turning point in the in the story. And here's something interesting. I got a request online to cover the uh, the Greek additions to Esther, which I wouldn't have done except uh, someone requested it. And here it, the Greek text inserts a prayer uh, of Mordecai. And so I want to read this prayer. And as I'm reading this, I want people to think about a couple of things. Uh, the titles that Mordecai chooses for God are very explicit, and they're they're um, inextricably tied into what Mordecai is asking of God. The praises that Mordecai has for God tie directly into what Mordecai expects from God. So naming God and praising God ends up being the grounds for holding God accountable. Naming God's power as creator, naming God as the covenant maker, the one who made a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, that is the foundation for the prayer. And so for people who want to spice up their prayer life, think about how you name God in the prayer. And that will, uh, the petitions will flow from the praise of God. Well, anyway, so here is Mordecai's prayer. Um, and this is the edition that's listed as uh, edition letter C, or um, sometimes it's numbered as Esther 13, but it goes in here at the end of chapter 4, right after Esther says to Mordecai, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out to the king. Here is what it says. Mordecai went away and did exactly as Esther had commanded recalling all that the lord had done by the way this is this is the like i said we don't normally get we don't get in the hebrew text the lord or god mentioned at all so here it's prominent when you've got the lord mentioned recalling all that the lord had done he prayed to him and said o lord god almighty king all things are in your power and there is no one to oppose you in your will to save israel you made heaven and earth and every wonderful thing under the heavens. You are Lord of all, and there is no one who can resist you, Lord. You know all things. You know, O Lord, that it was not out of insolence or pride or desire for fame that I acted thus in not bowing down to the proud Haman. Gladly would I have kissed the soles of his feet for the salvation of Israel. But I acted as I did so as not to place the honor of man above that of God. I will not bow down to anyone but you, my Lord. It is not out of pride that I am acting thus. And now, Lord God, King, God of Abraham, spare your people, for our enemies plan our ruin and are bent upon destroying the inheritance that was yours from the beginning. Do not spurn your portion, which you redeemed for yourself out of Egypt. Hear my prayer. Have pity on your inheritance and turn our sorrow into joy. Thus we shall live to sing praise to your name, O Lord. Do not silence those who praise you. All Israel, too, cried out with all their strength, for death was staring them in the face. So, I am just so moved by Mordecai's prayer and and the uh, the Jews' response as well. Like he names God, holds God accountable to God's character and God's promises. I mean, this is the the spirit that I have in me as a queer person. Um, and 
that's probably we're running out of time. So uh, you're going to have to read the rest of Esther on your own and figure it out. <laughs> what do you have Something. to add? Oh, gosh. At this point, nothing. Like, I mean, that prayer was beautiful. I did not know that was a thing. And I'm glad you, you know, went and introduced it to us. Uh, so, you know, thank you. Um, and yeah, I, I think I've more or less said what I wanted to say. Um, you know, and you know, this is a short book, but obviously we could have spent more time on it. And yeah. uh, I think we have said enough today. So yeah, I think we'll I've said ahead. enough to do today too. <laughs> All right, then we'll go ahead and tape and clip it there. Um, but before we um, close things up, I want to remind you that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has podcast partners we want to put you on to. One of them is the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Features uh, in-depth interviews about religion and culture, featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're uh, spiritual but not religious, or religious but not spiritual, or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds.org and by searching for us on Facebook. Also want to give a uh, special thanks to those folks who have been helping us behind the scenes. Uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for helping out with social media stuff. And uh, of course, the team doing the work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman and Beth Johnson. Uh, these outlines also include uh, the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin Study Helps. Uh, you can find a link to the outlines on the show notes, as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. Uh, is there anything else we got to let people know just by way of events, other than we are still on break, and this is just you know, one episode that we just had to speak on, or one Come Follow Me lesson that we had to speak on? Yeah, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing that I can think of other than I want to, I might want to do one on the Song of Songs because there's a strong woman character in that, uh, and I think there's ways of reading it responsibly in in the service of queer liberation as well, which might be surprising. And uh, yeah, that's another book that that doesn't name God, um, except perhaps in one place, depending on how you understand the Hebrew. But anyway, yeah, so it's great having another uh, another reconnection, and hopefully we'll have another one of these come follow me uh, ones in the next few months or so.